Hello and welcome to Doomed to Repeat It, the podcast about current events and the history that got us here. This is the third in a three-part series on the degradation of Mos Maiorum in the Roman Republic and how it compares with some of the degradation of our own traditions here in the United States. Last time, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, Gaius Marius, um, who reformed the army and uh, defied a lot of norms to do it, and how his rivalry with Sulla eventually got us to a place where Lucius Cornelius Sulla was at the top of a government uh, that was devoid of anyone underneath him. Um, he, you know, Mar- Marius had killed um, all of his supporters that were in positions of authority when Marius was the consul right before Sulla came in. Uh, and then Sulla came in and seized power, and he promptly killed everybody that was loyal to Marius. That left very few public servants in their positions. And so today we're going to talk about how that situation created the Sullen Constitution, and the ultimate failure of that Constitution gave us Gaius Julius Caesar. We're going to ask questions about how that compares to the current moment. So, Logan, uh, when we left off last time, um, Sulla was standing at the top of an empty bureaucracy and found himself having to make some difficult choices about how to make the government run. Um, I think that already there are some things to say about an empty bureaucracy, um, you know, the going back to the Obama administration, um, if not further, there have been contentious fights over getting basic bureaucrats approved that need a Senate level approval. And so a lot of jobs have gone unfilled. And uh, that extends into the Trump administration to the extent that the, there are many uh, senior positions that Trump just hasn't even nominated someone for and that have sat empty and that continue to send, sit empty in his administration. And so empty bureaucracies to me feel like a very relevant concern. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, you know, I think we also have a situation that the posts that have been filled are not po- not filled by people who would traditionally have filled them. Um, and I, I do think there's a parallel there to Sala, in part because Sala just didn't have anybody, like whatever informal bureaucracy Rome had, you know, most of those people were dead. So the people who were there to fill in, I don't think were really qualified. Um, and it's a little bit different because I think our current administration is, um, not interested in finding qualified candidates. Um, but, uh, but there's certainly a, um, a parallel there. I also think, um, I think there's an interesting parallel uh, to Iraq in a way also right after the um, George W. Bush's post 9-11 adventure in Iraq. Um, uh, it's interesting looking at the history of that uh, because there were there was a, a working bureaucracy um, staffed by Baathists, right, under Saddam Hussein. And rather than retain any of those people, the... George W. Bush administration sort of uh, opted to to go a different direction, basically keep all the Baathists out of out of power. These are people who, of course, had some loyalty to Saddam Hussein, and so you know maybe it's awkward to keep those people in power. But they also know how they knew how to you know run a state, and by creating a vacuum there, what you had was the state fall into civil war. 
as people jockeyed to uh, fill that power vacuum. It's interesting, I think, because I think something something about America, and this is probably not a parallel with Rome, um, something about America that makes our state pretty stable is that we do have a a bureaucracy which functions um, pretty well um, without uh, a lot of, you know, graft um, compared to some states. Like, you don't have to know somebody's uncle to redress a grievance or get something done. There's a form to fill out. And uh, I think typically you have a pretty good, um, you have a, you have a pretty good um, expectation that filling out the form and giving it to the right person, although it might be slow, eventually, um, eventually you'll see uh, some kind of action on the part of the government. But without a bureaucracy there, you know, to uh, to deal with the form, you know, that manhole cover on your street that is gone is not going to get replaced. So, um, anyway, uh, I do think. Um, I do think there's a parallel there. Uh, it's interesting that you look back to Obama administration as well, sort of his um, difficulties with um, filling uh, especially judicial appointments. There was also like executive administrative agencies like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which didn't have a director approved. Right. And and I think that, you know, up until probably up until the Obama administration, a lot of those kind of appointments were really just a matter of course. Um, if you, you know, if somebody was appointed who was kind of inflammatory or, or way out of bounds or totally, um, uh, wrong for the office without qualifications that, you know, there might be some questions, but, uh, there, this was a new way that I think we can say Mitch McConnell sort of struck on to leverage, um, leverage power, uh, as a minority party against the Obama administration. So... Well, and so I think that the the criticisms that you get from the opponents of both of the last two presidents, right? Um, you know, President Trump and, at, at present and President Obama before, um, both of them are criticized by opposite sides of the aisle for doing the same thing in a lot of ways, just using executive orders and executive, you know, unilateral executive actions to manage the affairs of state because. Uh, you know, the passage of legislation isn't really manageable. And a lot of those executive agencies also like aren't overly staffed. And so at some point the president has to do something to get things done. It's like a political necessity in, in, in the middle of everything else. And so you have to do things like declare a national emergency, um, or in the case of Obama decide to selectively enforce certain laws that some people have a problem with you making a decision to selectively enforce. And so I don't know. It feels to me like that's a very relevant issue. When it 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 just it creates sort of it creates an instability, right? Like that someone someone can take advantage of um, when bureaucracy is just chugging chugging along, and everybody kind of believes in the project um, or agrees, you know, in a tacit way uh, to keep the to keep the thing staffed, there's really not an issue. But once, once that starts to become destabilized, I don't I think it's, yeah, hard to, I don't know, put the genie back in the bottle, I guess. Yeah. And so I guess one thing that I wanted to, I thought was relevant going back to your, um, your example of the Bathists in Iraq, um, is that 
so there's there's sort of two directions you can go when you find yourself at the top of an empty bureaucracy, right? And very like oversimplifying everything, uh, you can basically either go towards uh, anarchy, um, or you can go towards like totalitarian autocracy, right? Um, and just like control everything that might go wrong and happen with an iron fist. And Sulla definitely in Rome leaned towards the latter. Um, so finding, you know, finding, finding an, basically no governmental structures supporting him, um, he had to make decisions about how to exercise power, and he decided to do it by instituting a new constitution, um, known to history as the Sullen Constitution. And if unilaterally rewriting the country's constitution isn't, you know, an authoritarian, autocratic move, I don't know what is. Um, and so his constitution... Um, was kind of a perverse document in a lot of ways. Um, in this sense, um, it tried. So, talking about putting the genie back the back in the bottle, that's what Sulla really wanted to do. Um, he wanted to, despite the fact that he had just seized power in a violent coup, um, and then sort of purged his enemies and in, in the streets, um, he wanted to restore decorum to the Roman project. And um, he had a certain view on how that was done. Um, so the Sullen Constitution, when he introduced it, um, it, so, it sort of, so if you recall from last week, right, Sulla was the consul who was supposed to be in charge of this Greek campaign uh, against Mithridates. Um, and what happened was he ended up in a conflict with Marius over who would get that command because the tribunes had appointed Marius. Right. Um, and so, and in, in addition to all of that, Sulla was a blue blood, right? He was a, from a senatorial family, and he very much was drinking the Kool-Aid on the Senate being better, just plain better than everybody else. Um, and so, as a result, when he rewrote the Constitution, he did it with all of this in mind, and he basically eviscerated the office of the Tribunate. Um, so what he did, he did a few things. The first and the most brutal thing that he did uh, for the Office of the Tribune was he made it so that if you serve as a tribune, that's the end of your political career. You are not allowed to hold another political office. Crazy. All right. All of a sudden, everybody with ambitions on being a consul cannot take the path that Gracchus took, um, what feels like a long time ago now. Right. You can't like revive a flagging political career by going into the tribune. All you can do is kill a, tra a, a flagging political career by going into the tribune. It's like if... It's like if becoming Speaker of the House was the end of the road, which honestly, honestly is kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> Interestingly enough, but um, but it's not obviously in the Constitution that it's you know the end of the road. So, so he also removed the tribunary veto and relegated the tribunate to basically a place where members of the plebeian class could get together and complain about how badly the government was actually being run in the Senate. Um, because what he, what the Sullen Constitution did was it made the Senate. The, the first and all. And of course, you know, he kind of like packed the Senate with his supporters. He added about 300 senators to the rolls from, um, from the ranks of the equites who I, I hesitate to call them the knightly class. Cause I, I kind of don't like that comparison, but we're going to use it anyway. Um, so basically these are the, the soldiers who are, um, of, of a high enough rank to be mounted, um, on the battlefield but not necessarily like lords with land. Uh, except now they are lords with land because he, he he elevated them to the Senate. But listen, the Senate's working for Sulla. Um, 
which is, you know, kind of par for the course with this thing. And so, and so Sulla at once is trying to control every level lever of government and also restore it to some, you know, some myth mythologized past where, uh, in a very paternalist way, the, the, the senators are, are ruling the Republic for the benefit, for the benefit of everyone. Um, but not really giving everyone, um, any input. Um, and Sulla managed the Republic through these levers pretty effectively for 10 years. Honestly, um, he had himself declared dictator for life. Um, like another guy we know. <laughs> and then he, he, you know, he rewrote the constitution for the country as dictator and then ran the country with an iron fist. And it, you can't even say it was ineffective. Like he ran the country reasonably well. Um, and he tried to set up a system of checks and balances so that what he was, what he had done, which was basically seize power at the point of a sword, wasn't possible for anybody else. Um, the problem is, as the problem so often is in autocratic societies, was with the transition of power. Mm -hmm. um, so Sulla, again, to his credit, decided to leave power after 10 years. Just voluntarily was like, oh, and now my period as dictator for life is over. You guys have fun. Um, and so he retires and uh, dies not too long after, honestly. But um, what he left behind him and what he saw as his saving grace for the system that he had set up was a series of conflicted lieutenants, all of whom were jockeying with each other and undermining each other in turn to sort of gain ultimate power, right? Like it was, it was game of Thrones style maneuver, like court politics and maneuvering at its best. And so people who had previously been Sulla's lieutenants, people with names like Lucullus and Pompey and Crassus, um, are all out there. Suddenly there's no Sulla at the top. And what Sulla was counting on was that their mutual rivalries would sort of hold them all down equally. But that's not what happened. Instead, it really gave a chance for certain of the more cutthroat members of that sort of cabal of lieutenants um, to rise above and then just do exactly what Sulla had done, Constitution be damned. Um, so let's put a pin in that before we start talking about what happened after Sulla died. What are your thoughts? Do you see, um, do you see much that looks in, in the, sullen organ, or the sullen regime like what we see today? Well, I, I think it's my, my, so my first reaction to Sulla is I wonder if he thought, like, did he convince himself that his constitutional reforms were like the reason that he was able to rule, you know, as long as he did and as effectively as he did? Because to me, it seems like he ruled essentially at the point of a sword, um, and more than anything else, um, you know, he killed everybody who was anybody, <laughs> and the only people who were left were people, who, you know, who had sort of been cowed by him or who already kind of had drunk, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid, um, so to speak. So um, there's a question for me there um, that sort of the uncontained violence that, you know, led to him, led to him gaining power in the first place is is kind of rare or foreign to us i don't know um and so i i i sort of i sort of trip on trip on that you know um 
for someone to turn an ar- army around and you know march into Washington D.C. is is a little different than um, you know an equi- uh, a um, a uh, electoral college sort of coup. Um, although you know we've had a couple of those in recent history, so um, maybe it's becoming a trend, but. Um, in our own history, notwithstanding at the moment in Roman history, the Sulla's model is one that was followed by Augustus for sure. Yeah. Right. Any autocratic society is going to have issues uh, with that transition because, um, you have to strike a balance. I think while somebody's in power between the violence that was necessary to take over and then the violence to stay, so staying in power has to be balanced against some kind of, you know, some kind of peace. Um, and so do you have chief lieutenants under you who are, like, you know, bloodthirsty enough to, to actually rule? Um, I don't know. Uh, I mean, Lucullus was not, a, was not a successful guy, so the cream didn't really rise to the top. Or if it did, it wasn't, you know, it just wasn't up to the task. So Well, Lucullus is a weird case, and, and we'll get to him in a minute, but, like, on the one hand, he was absurdly, I mean, by certain measures, he was absurdly uh, successful. Um, you know, I mean, he he was kind of scorned at the end of his life by the Roman Senate, and that's why people look at him as not a success. But, I mean, he had enough money to go, like, sit in his estate outside of Rome and debauch himself until he died from pleasure. <laughs> like, yeah. that's not sure. too bad in my book. No, I, I just I I don't know. Maybe um uh, maybe it's a an issue more of um of the you know as we talked about the norms, right? Because Lucullus was this strong adherent to the Sullen Constitution. He really believed in the project. And I don't think that the norms existed uh in Ro- in Roman society for kind of a you know for a formalized constitution. Um, and, and so, you know, this idea that, uh, this idea that everyone would kind of bend the knee, you know, to this document or to this sort of series of series of reforms. Um, it seems like everyone was kind of biding their time. Well, and I don't even think Sulla was insensible to that. Um, you know, he, he was hoping that their rivalries would, would hold them all down at once and sort of make them subservient to the Constitution, even if they didn't really want to be. Yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, I do think, with, without speculating about what the end game is, um, you kind of do see um, in the current administration a place where members of the administration are constantly played off of each other. Well, and it, it's interesting, you know, this idea about rivalries kind of holding people down. I think that in the United States... The, the opposite has been true to an extent. I think that the ultimate dominance of the Constitution and, I would say, the doc- Declaration of Independence as sort of semi, um, it's like almost like scriptural documents um, that sort of stand even above kind of traditionally traditional religious scriptural documents, like, say, the Bible, for instance, um, has actually... <laughs> it's sort of tempered the conflicts that we do have. Um, you know, the United States thus far has avoided, um, has avoided the sort of sectarian wars that Europe, you know, dealt with for, um, 500, 
800 years. Um, and um, although I think you could, you could probably count the civil war as a, as a, you know, theological um, disagreement, but, um, but it's the, it's not that the jockeying is what keeps the constitution in power. It's the, it's the ultimate um, power of the constitution that kind of tempers those, those, um, those conflicts. That's how I see it. I I think there's a real difference there. I mean, I, I think there's a real difference, but I think that there are shades of the same thing because you everything you said is correct. Um, but it can also, or at least I can, like in the case of the civil war, it can have the opposite effect, right? When we disagree about what that sort of foundational scriptural document means, yeah, we're going to go to the mat for that. Yeah, that's right. That's true. Anyway, so let's let's talk a little bit about Lucullus because he was the one lieutenant who was kind of on board. He was he was if possible. He was somehow more blue blooded than Sulla. And so when Sulla's like, listen, we're going to give the power back to the senatorial families who know what they're doing. He was like, that is right. We do know what we're doing. Um, so after Sulla died, Lucullus got a couple of lucrative commands, one in Spain and one in the east. And uh, he he raised personal armies from his clients and he was sort of another one of the early adopters of that model, although, as we know, not the earliest. Um, but, you know, he followed the Marian model in the sense that there was no land requirement and that these soldiers were there to get paid, right? Like, they were, they were there to get paid. But there was a conflict in Lucullus about this because he didn't necessarily see them as being there to get paid. Don't get me wrong. He was going to let them loot and plunder at the times that it made sense. But he also like legitimately did sort of come with uh, a view on what he saw as the best interest of the Republic. So there would be times when they would, a city would surrender to them. um, And he would decide not to let his army sack it in order to, to maintain good administration for Rome. And that was very high-minded and noble of him, and it was probably what Sulla would have wanted and what the Constitution would have called for in many ways, but it's not what his soldiers <laughs> wanted. And the guys around you with swords are the most important people to please. And so eventually they mutinied. Uh, he basically had to go back to Rome in shame. Um, he was chastised by the Senate. And to make a long story short, the guy who was defending the Sullen Constitution and the structures built into it, as I just said, spent the rest of his life sitting on an estate in Campania eating oysters, which, by the way, the Romans found to be incredibly, like, scandalously decadent. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, They were just, they were one of those foods. Um, And then later on, like, they would, like, the absurdly rich would, this is an aside, but the absurdly rich would have, like, oyster ponds on their estates, and that was, like, a sign of how absurdly rich you were <laughs> wow that's really fascinating i know ne- i'd never heard that that's interesting uh so lucullus basically uh ate drank and pleasured himself to death um while the while the remaining great men from sulla's entourage um did the actual vying for power because lucullus um god bless him was from an old was from a, a time that has, had since passed I should say God's bless him, I suppose. But in any case, um, <laughs> he was from a time when there was a lot more respect for the traditions of governing than there was now. And he just didn't realize the new world that he lived in of Roman politics that were winner take all. So 
I mean, I don't, I don't want to point to people who are going to die in, in, in wallowing in shame and decadence, uh, you know, <laughs> as they fade into general obscurity um, and, and public contempt. But do we see anybody who, who kind of feels like a Lucullus in, in our current political arrangement? Somebody who's doggedly adhering to norms that clearly no longer apply? Uh, well, I, I mean, I would argue that the Obama administration, um, essentially attempted that, um, you know, that, that he sort of wanted to function much like Jimmy Carter as kind of a, a moral leader or some kind of a pastor, you know, for the country. Um, to try to help lead us back to, uh, back to a situation where you know, people with different political orientations can sit down in a room and hash things out, you know, just based on their mutual respect for each other and the the uh, project of government. Um, which now, I mean, in hindsight, was clearly was clearly like that situation had clearly past um, by the time he took office and by the time he was out of office uh, you know a sort of new norm had um, had arisen uh, well and the next person to take power clearly isn't committed to the same project exactly and so and and it, you know and Trump the Trump administration has kind of taken up that same um, that same spirit of you know, at all costs, roll back anything the Obama administration attempts to do, or that the, I guess, rather than saying the Obama administration, maybe we just say, you know, that the other party, that the ruling, you know, the the party with executive power wants to get done, um, resist at all costs, and uh, and then you know, roll back when when possible. Um, I, so I mean, that's that's a that's my very you know personal biased viewpoint on on the way that Obama um, wielded power or chose not to wield power um, and um, I, I don't know if I can think of anyone else I mean one thinks of uh, someone like Mitt Romney uh, possibly who's you know uh, a f- you know fellow member of the GOP along with Trump and McConnell um, you know who has come out occasionally and sort of actually just this week after the um, after the Mueller report was released, um, he came out and sort of made a statement against, you know, the way things are being handled. Um, you know, he's a Senator now he's, he's kind of run, you know, uh, for executive power and, and was rebuffed. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Do you, do you have anybody else in mind? Uh, you know, not offhand. Um, I think the Obama administration analogy was a good one that I hadn't thought of. Um, I was sort of working through that in my head, but yeah, no, that's a good one. Um, but yeah, so let's, I mean, we, we can talk a little bit, um, in a moment about what, you know, what some of, some of the members of the administration or the Senate who might be playing in the new normal would be. But I think, I mean, that's a relatively easy list to point out. Basically, anybody who's left in the administration at this point is playing by the new rules. Right. And that that's probably true for a lot of the, the GOP in Congress as well. A lot of the old guard GOP have, 
either lost in primaries or, or retired or declared their intent to retire. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the people who are coming in to replace them are, well, they're coming in and these are the rules of the game and that's the game they're playing. So, um, let's take a look at what happened when, with, with that in Rome. Um, and sort of Lacalle was one competing member that, that came to power, but there were others as well. Um, there was a guy by the name of Pompey, um, also known as Pompey the Great, Gnaeus Pompey Magnus, <laughs> um, and, uh, and a guy named Crassus. And these two, these two guys ended up working later on with, with Julius Caesar as the first triumvirate, where they formed sort of a shadowy political organization who pulled strings and made puppets dance and basically ran the republic such as it was um, from, from, again, behind the scenes. And then, you know, sort of relied on each other for political support and to not sort of drag each other through the mud in the elections, that sort of thing. But early on in his career, uh, Pompey was um, was just kind of an arrogant, upstart, you know, military lieutenant who had a little bit of, of potential. But frankly, even as Sulla died, he wasn't necessarily the guy, yeah. right? Um, so his father had kind of you know, he was, I kind of think about an analogy to, to a guy like, um, you know, John F. Kennedy, whose dad had, had run, had been a bootlegger. His father had used some kind of shady business operations to sort of vault himself up to the ranks of the equites and eventually the nobility under Sulla. That's interesting. Um, but so Pompey Magnus ends up going on campaign with Sulla early on in his career. Um, and, you know, learning the lessons of Sulla, and I don't mean the lessons of the Sullen constitution, I mean the lessons of, of Sulla's behavior, which is basically that, you know, well, I guess Pompey himself put it best when he said, don't quote laws to those of us with swords, um, to the Senate. And that was very much his orientation about eh, everything in life. At the time when, um, when, when Sulla died, um, Pompey was given, um, or sort of strong armed his way into various commands of armies um, at an earlier age than he should have been eligible for those officer posts. And he kept like winning things. But the thing about wi him winning things wasn't really that he won them so much as that he was really good at taking credit for winning them. <laughs> yeah. And so, for example, like uh, Spartacus's rebellion happened during this time. Yeah. And Spartacus's rebellion was like it was handled by Crassus, right? Marcus Crassus went out there. He confronted the rebellious slaves. He crushed them in a battle and their army, which had been building at that point and then trying to escape at the southern portion of the boot of Italy, um, was shattered. Um, all of a sudden, the co cohesion and momentum that the slave army had had was gone. Um, and basically, they were they were reduced to a number of like slaves fleeing recapture. Mm -hmm. Like that was the effect of, of the battle that Crassus had. Pompey, meanwhile, um, after or as this battle was wrapping up, was returning from a campaign from a tour in Spain. And his legions are just, you know, marching back to Rome like you do. And uh, they run into about 2000 of these slaves fleeing the battle with Crassus. And so, you know, they, they form up into battle formation and they kill the 2000 slave, you know, raggedy slaves that that are, again, you know, barely could be called an army. Um, and then they march back to Rome and declare that they have ended the slave rebellion. <laughs> Crassus was kind of pissed. They had to work through that one before they could work together with Caesar later on. But right. So, so Pompey was sort of, and people knew this about Pompey. Like it wasn't a secret that he was claiming credit for things that he probably didn't deserve full credit for. Mm -hmm. 
And initially, he had earned a nickname that was kind of sarcastic, Pompey Magnus, Pompey the Great. And all of his colleagues were like, yeah, yeah, Pompey the Great, right? Like, they were all kind of rolling their eyes when they said it. But he was like, hell yeah, I'm Pompey the Great. Call me Pompey the Great. Listen, soldiers, my name is Pompey the Great. Call me, I am Pompey the Great. And don't you forget it. And and history didn't. And so he, you know, I mean, he ultimately... <laughs> went down in a rivalry with Caesar at the very end at, at, you know, at the battle of Pharsalus and then was killed in Egypt. But before then he, he was the pre, he was the guy that the Senate was afraid of. Like yeah. Caesar was not, um, everybody was afraid of Pompey right up until pa- Caesar crossed the Rubicon because Pompey was accruing power in Rome that was unprecedented. It was, um, it was all at the point of a sword, right? Like he said that in the Senate building to senators who were trying to tell him what he was doing was illegal. And he said, don't quote laws to those of us with swords. So his whole orientation was to seize power through whatever means necessary. And he did it. Um, and people were scared of Pompey at the time that, that he was seizing and exercising power. Um, and then at the same time, um, you know, Marcus Crassus, the other guy who actually sort of did most of the legwork in destroying that slave army, Sometimes you point to people who are like absurdly rich and you say they have family money that came to them. And it's not like Crassus was from a poor family, but you got to give him credit because he had like, you know, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates levels of wealth and he did it all himself. He really did pull himself up by his bootstraps. Self-made kind of guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's self-made and he would, you know, he was self-made in probably the worst possible way. You know, he was a slumlord. Um, he was, he would, he would. He operated a fire brigade, um, and 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 by fire brigade, I really mean like a, a mob protection from fire racket, because he would they would go around collecting dues, and if you weren't a if you weren't a dues paying member and your house was burning, they would just stand there uh, until you agreed to pay them to put it out, or until it burned to the ground, and then they would buy it at at a, they would offer to buy the property at you know dirt cheap rates. There was also speculation, although unproven that they would also like set fires for people who didn't, you know, at places where the, where the resident didn't pay dues. Sure. Um, and you know, he was a money lender and he, he didn't just use money lending to gain interest, but he used it to gain influence. Um, people who owed him money owed him favors. Like it was very mob bossy, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those are sort of the two models or the two most effective models that emerged after Sulla was, um, you know, sort of the strong arm stealing of influence. And then the, you know, we're, we're probably 60, 60 or so years after the period we started discussing about with the Gracchi. And in that 60 right. years, wealth inequality has spiraled out of control. And so um, using sort of the, the absurd wealth to buy influence um, and really pervert the government. So those are sort of the two ways that power is being exercised in post sullen Rome, which is not, you know, what Sulla had in mind when he put in place the Constitution. So let's stop there um, and talk about um, where, where and whether there are parallels to what we're doing here and uh, here and now in our in our in our post republic democracy. Well, <clears throat> um, certainly the we've talked about this before, but the uh, influence of money in politics is. Is a huge issue um, for us right now. And that mirrors a widening wealth gap as well. Yeah, um, and uh, I was going to say also that you know it's the widening wealth gap. I think is 
part of what um, Dan Blue call us. Um, he may have thought that the army was not as desperate as desperate as it was, right, to be sort of successful um, in a you know financial way. Um, but um, so yeah, the influence of money in politics. Also, I think that there's a certain kind of strong arming parallel um, in gerrymandering. You know, these highly, highly gerrymandered districts. Um, I saw a district recently, uh, I can't remember the guy's first name, Crenshaw. He's the guy with the eye patch, a uh, Republican from Texas. And uh, someone said that his district is so gerrymandered that it looks like Bart Simpson taking a poop. <laughs> so, like, you can imagine, you know, <clears throat> you can imagine how how elaborately gerrymandered something has to look for, for it to, to look like Bart Simpson. Um, so th- there's a, it's not outright violence, right? Um, these gerrymandered districts, but I think that a lot of, a lot of these districts, especially in racially segregated cities, which, you know, so many cities are s- still very, very racially segregated. A lot of that racially, racial segregation comes out of redlining, which, um, you know, we can trace back to, um, segregation, uh, as a, as a policy, you know, in, in the South and in other cities, which we can trace back to slavery, which, uh, you know, we, we trace back to the kind of mercantilist, uh, theft of, you know, human people from Africa. So, you know, there is, a, there is violence in, in gerrymandering, not in every, respect but there is a kind of violent um and a violent undercurrent to that uh to that process i think it's not just about partisan politics um there's a there's a whole there's a whole history there and so um so i see a parallel there also um and then i think just the the way that both of the parties have kind of um, pandered to moneyed interests, right? The more, the more money these folks have on wall street, the more money kind of multinational, um, corporations have to throw behind, you know, this idea of free trade. Um, the more our, our, you know, two political bodies, you know, seem to be enthralled to, to those interests. So, yeah. Um, and so where I want this all to go and where I'd like to sort of wrap this, wrap up this look at, at how discourse broke down in Rome in the time that led up to, to Julius Caesar's ultimate sort of coup, um, which wasn't the first one apparently. So is, is with sort of, I think the, the thing that illustrates sort of what was happening in the Republic really well is the Catalina affair. And, and I think as sort of a foil to the Catalina affair and, and certainly he was a player in it. So I don't know if he serves as a foil exactly. We also have to talk about, um, uh, Marcus Tullius Cicero. Um, now Cicero, I'm actually, I'm not sure how familiar people in general, um, are with Cicero. He, he is what passes for sort of a Roman philosopher mm-hmm. in the sense that like he was a legal theorist <laughs> and that's what passes for philosophy in Rome because Rome, right. Uh, uh, but like, so occasionally you'll see a quote that's attributed to him and sort of run of the mill daily life. Um, 
And he was an important figure both in Caesar's time and in the time leading up to it. But I just, I'm not sure how familiar people are with him. So I'm going to spend just a moment talking about how Cicero came up. And then we'll spend a minute talking about Catiline. Um, but the backdrop for all of this is wealth inequality is out of control, right? And has, and has been sort of going out of control for the last 60 plus years at least. As a result, as we've seen in sort of the uh, beginning as early as the, the Gracchan sort of conflicts, there are, there are sort of two very distinct sets of political interests that are developing as a result of this, right? Um, one, is, one is sort of the needs of the, 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 the poor, um, dispossessed, you know, smallholding farmers, the urban poor. Um, those, are, those aren't always the same thing, but in general. And the other is the interests of the Senate, right, which are the, the people who are sort of raking in these gobs of money from foreign wars, um, and, uh, generally reaping the benefits of the state. And so I don't want to describe it as like a conservative and a liberal impulse necessarily, but there's a way to think about it in that way. But I mean, it's really a class struggle at this point. Um, and that's, you know, that's what we see play out, um, in the battles with the tribunate that, uh, the battles in the tribunate that started with the Gracchans and continued through Gaius Marius. And then the sort of reactionary, politics of the Senate and Sulla, um, you know, both, you know, murdering, uh, the murdering both Gracchi brothers eventually, um, on the part of the Senate. And then, um, you know, ultimately with Sulla making the Senate, you know, the, the, the king of the roost, um, and they would hate be using that term king anyway, in the post Sulla era, that, you know, just like you said, there's kind of power vacuums that people can seize. And the people that are seizing power in the midst of those power vacuums um, are the people who have the means to do so, right? The people who are, by and large, um, the rich and moneyed interests. So while it's not necessarily like the senatorial interest in the traditional statesmanly sense, um, the people who, who are seizing and exercising power right now um, are doing so, you know, in the case of Crassus with the use of money, in the case of Pompey with the use of military commands. Both of those bespeak the, you know, the class that that's benefiting from everything and have sort of left the class that was represented by the Gracchan faction um, out in the cold in many ways. That's not to say that these two factions have stopped competing. And so let's talk about Cicero and Catiline. Um, so Cicero, um, he was a new man. Um, his, his family was not of senatorial rank. Uh, but he was a bootstrap story, and and probably a better one, um, both for the Roman palate and for our American palate, uh, than Crassus was. Um, you know, he came up through the ranks by basically being a brilliant orator. I mean, his family had money. He studied or you know oratory in Greece. Um, it's not again not like he was poor, but his family wasn't. You know, they were they were wealthy merchants living in the Italian peninsula. He was his family did not you know previously have a senatorial seat. Um, it's possible, I'm not clear on this, that his family was one of those equite families that only achieved senatorial status after Sulla expanded the, the ranks of the Senate. Hmm. Um, but it didn't matter because Cicero was so talented that he, um, as he put it, and he, he put it this way a lot because he liked to brag about this, um, he got every office on cursus honorum in his year, which means basically the first year you're eligible to run for uh, praetor and quester and, you know, and all of the offices all the way up to consul, he ran for, for those offices and he, uh, he won all the way up through the consulship. Um, but he did that in many ways by 
playing politics with the rich and the elite, right? So he was, even though he was a novus homo, he was the novus homo who was up there speaking and defending the old structures of the Roman Republican aristocracy. You could look at Cicero as kind of a class trader um, or a, a social status trader in some way. Climb, he's a climber, yeah. He is a climber. Um, and so me, as a foil to Cicero, um, you have Catiline. Um, and Catiline, he ran for the consulship, and he was terrifying to the aristocracy. He was noble, so this is kind of a weird conjunction of of class interests being reversed with the because the novus homo is here defending the aristocracy. Meanwhile, the aristocrat Catiline comes to the table with uh, a series of proposals that focus, you know, on the again the Gracchan constituency, like the the urban poor in particular. Um, but also the land, you know, the small landholders and the dispossessed landholders. Um, and then the final part of his political, um, sort of triad was, um, sullen veteran soldiers, mm-hmm. um, who had been recently given small holdings of land, um, but also had accrued a lot of debt, um, in the period of time since the sullen conflicts. And so he ran on a platform of, Forgive everybody's debts. Let's just wipe the books clean on all the debts in Rome in the in the Roman Empire right now, and uh, and I have everybody start you know from the beginning. Which, I mean, it's a very populist proposal, right? And he had a lot of support for it for obvious reasons. All the people who held those debts were in the Senate, and they didn't want that to happen. They engaged in some shady you know politicking where they accused him of some less than above board behavior. There's some debate about whether this all happened or whether it's something that Cicero made up or made happen for propaganda purposes. So take take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt, because Cicero is absolutely the hero of this story. But he's also, well, in one sense, but he's also the guy who sort of like made it a thing in the first place, too. But according to according to Cicero, he brought he brought um, Catiline up on charges in court of seeking to undermine the republic through a violent coup and the murder of of senators and both consuls in the year sixty three uh, sixty three BC. E. So was Cicero co was he consul at this time? Um, I believe he was. Yes, but uh, okay. I'll correct that okay. if I'm wrong. Um, and so Catiline, uh, loses an election because of these accusations and then he's brought up on charges in court and ultimately nothing comes of the court case. And it's not clear what happened the fir- in that first sort of set of conspiracies, but then he definitely started engaging in a certain amount of conspiracy after he had been accused of it. And so, again, Catiline, sort of the champion of the people's interests, finally decided that he had had enough of being dragged through the mud by the aristocracy um, who opposed, you know, his program of debt relief. And so he decided he couldn't succeed at this through the normal rules of political decorum, such as they existed at the time. Just couldn't do it. Um, And so instead, he actually did start plotting to murder a bunch of senators um, he also sent Gaius Manlius, who had been a, another one of, Sel- of Sulla's centurions in his army, 
And uh, Gaius Manlius went out into the countryside and started to gather an army um, in the in the area north of Rome, um, and then placed soldiers at other specific areas. Um, and then Catiline was basically ready to um, to murder Cicero, um, as well as the other you know the other um, the other consul for the year and a number of leading uh, aristocratic senators. Um, but Cicero uncovered the plot the day it was going to happen, and he brought it to the Senate, and as a result, um, the plot was foiled. And then uh, Catiline was denounced in the Senate um, and exiled, and so he went into exile, in quotes, but then he just went and joined the army that they had assembling outside the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, but while he was joining the army, um, the murder of, you know, the mass murder of senators didn't go off quite as effectively. Cicero laid a trap where he, in theory got them to write some incriminating communications, um, which were then intercepted by Cicero's agents in Gaul. So who knows, maybe Cicero forged the whole thing. Catiline was, um, was condemned to death along with five other conspirators. Interestingly enough, one of the people who stood up in the Senate to denounce the death penalty and defend Catiline was none other than Julius Caesar, who, you know, a few years was going to tap the same base of populist fear and anger uh, to come to power on his own. But so I, I might not have done the best job of telling that story, but I think the master strokes that are there are important, right? Like, which is two competing sets of interests that are born out of a spiraling wealth gap. Um, one of which is being served at every turn, leading the other to determine that they, that, you know, the sort of the standard means of redress through governmental action are no longer available to them and pushing them to extreme action. I think that's something we can both relate to now and project forward a little bit. And, and I don't want to be overly alarmist, but right. We can project that forward a little bit because we absolutely have a disaffected, you know, class of losers in our economy. Do you see the same parallels there that I do? Um, and do you think that it's a, a meaningful one? Yeah, I definitely do. Just certainly, well, let's see. We see kind of political possibilities opening up that wouldn't exist otherwise because of the, because of this sort of block of, as you say, you know, economic, so- social losers. Um, and I think that's true on both sides of the, you know, our own sort of liberal, conservative, leftist, rightist, you know, split. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think that um, Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders would be like possible as uh, national political figures without um, some pretty some pretty deeply, you know, felt uh, grievances, um, and and I think that it kind of it kind of means that there isn't a, there isn't a middle, you know, to, um, or is decreasingly a middle to, uh, appeal to what I don't see in our current moment is anyone really appealing to, um, some kind of elite. I think they use the elite to, you know, to fund their campaigns, but, but then they, there's a, kind of populist, you know, um, populist message, uh, that comes out of that. 
So I, I think the messaging tends to be a little bit more populist in many cases. Right. I mean, the elites are still the ones that are having their interests served at the end of the day. Right. And that's, I think that's sort of a net, almost natural, <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's whoever's pulling the strings is going to, you know, reap the benefits. Um, right. You look at the people on both sides of the aisle who have taken extreme action. So, you know, whether, whether it's the, the gentleman from Chicago, I shouldn't call him a gentleman, whatever the guy from Chicago who drove to Washington DC so he could shoot Steve Scalise at a con- yeah, congressional game. Um, right. or like a right wing, you know, like the synagogue shooter or Dylan roof from Charlottesville. Um, mm-hmm. rarely is it like that investment banker just went and shot up a bunch of people that he perceived to be his political enemies or the reason he's struggling in the economy. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, right. It's, it's always somebody who is a struggling B has a reason to blame whoever they're attacking for their struggles. Whether, and obviously that those reasons aren't necessarily could be specious, but they're still perceived reasons. Mm-hmm. And they're all people who need somebody to blame for where they are in the economy because they're not winners. Um, and those yeah. are the people who seem to take extreme action. And I think that that grows out of the sense that, you know, the normal remedies aren't available to us anymore. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I, you know, I certainly think that, um, you know, something we something we do in our culture is talk about gun control after these kind of shootings. But what we don't what we'd never talk about is. What are the yeah? What are the economic conditions that are creating the kind of anxiety that lead people to you know, to to these drastic measures, um, and uh, yeah, the fact that we have sort of a you know, open sucking void at the bottom of our society with no safety net to ca- to catch you means that people are more desperate than they would be. Um, obviously, obviously, mental illness and things like that are. are are in effect as well. But I think all that is exacerbated by, by the fact that, um, any kind of surplus that maybe people had, let's say 50 years ago, um, 30 years ago, even, um, that kind of idea of like, what should I do with the extra money that I don't need to survive is gone. And, and now it's more like, what do I need to do in order to, in order to continue to survive. Um, and so, yeah, we, the, the political options and I, you know, I wasn't thinking, I wasn't thinking through kind of these extremist acts as political options, but in a way they're seen as political options by the people who carry them out. Um, just like the, just like the guys who, you know, I was just reading about some of these paramilitary groups down at the border who've started rounding up, um, rounding up refugees and, you know, other people crossing the border and holding them with no legal authority. (laughs) Um, The reason they're down there in the first place is because of a search for meaning, which, you know, I think in better economic times is not so such a desperate need. Yeah, I agree. And I think the point that I ultimately wanted to get to was that a situation where more and more people are pushed into a place where, you know, push into the place we're describing, where normal remedies don't feel available anymore and extreme remedies of one kind or another feel more and more necessary to be heard. Um, Mm -hmm. Get to a place where that sort of, like, 
instantial violent instantial political violence becomes more and more normalized until you get to a place where political violence is is regular enough that somebody like Julius Caesar can and he did at the, at the time leverage it to get more political power like there were gangs going around backing up Caesar right. his opponents yeah. in the streets and at the end of the day you know there's ways that that can that same political normalization of political violence can make it kind of okay for a guy that you agree with or a guy that's going to give you free grain at the end of the day to sort of throw everything else out the window and topple the republic yeah and you know i i it's kind of interesting um i think if trump if trump had any kind of analysis of some of these social ills um you know if he was saying some of the reactionary stuff he he does on one side but then also handing out like handing out government favors to his base in it with sort of traditionally liberal social programs he would be unstoppable i mean this is a different episode but this is what hitler did <laughs> Right. And it's also what Julius Caesar did. He guaranteed that there was going to be grain. But Trump is Trump is not only not guaranteeing that there's going to be grain, he's he's actively he and his party are actively undoing the sort of social systems that might allow him to to really solidify his base and expand it beyond what he has now. And so there's a lack of a parallel there. But but it's you can see the possibility has opened up, you know, for that kind of, um, you know, proto-fascist, uh, proto-fascist pop, uh, you know, demagoguery or populism to, to really, to really take off. But I, Trump is such a brain poisoned. <laughs> I, mean, I just, you know, he, he doesn't have any strategy or tactics. He's just sort of a pulsating id. And so that's the difference, I think. Whereas, you know, Caesar had an ego and I don't, I don't even know if we can say Trump has that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that wraps up our discussion because the next step on this road is Julius Caesar and, um, he's probably going to get an episode or, or 50 to himself. So next time on doom to repeat it, we will, for the first time, escape the Jupiter-like gravity of the Roman Empire and talk about another topic in history that I think we're excited to talk about and uh, I'm afraid might map onto our current moment today. Um, so we're going to talk next week about the breakdown in civil discourse in the United States of America leading up to the Civil War. We'll talk about John Brown. We'll talk about bleeding Kansas. And we'll talk about a caning that took place on the floor of the Senate. Um, so I'm Nick. I'm Logan. And this has been Doomed to Repeat It.